Good to be back with you as always, and thank you again for your prayers in the past week. Value your prayers for next weekend particularly. I'm responsible for some meetings in Swansea. At any time you go to the far west of Wales, you need help. So I'd really appreciate your involvement with me in that. I'm going to read a section of the story of Joshua again this morning, this time from Joshua chapter 6. God willing, we'll be looking at the closing verses of chapter 5 this evening. As we continue our studies in Joshua 6, I'm going to read the, just down to verse 21 of this chapter, probably one of the most well-remembered stories in the whole of the Old Testament. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And they ordered the people, Advance, march around the city, with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the dead until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So we had the Ark of the Covenant, I beg your pardon, so we had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the things that are devoted to the Lord, so that you not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. This event made famous, I'm sure, by the old spiritual Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. But you'll notice he didn't fit very much. And it's one of the things where sometimes poetic license takes over from the truth. And I want to explore this just very briefly with you this morning. As we look at this whole question of the judgment of God and the mercy of God, which are so encapsulated in this story from ancient history. I can remember as a youngster thinking to myself when I heard of Hitler's suicide in his bunker in Germany, he got away with murder. Murder on a vast scale. And then someone said to me one day, he said, Peter, I was just a youngster, he said, Peter is about, God is about judgment just as he is about his grace and mercy. God is about judgment. I've said a little to you about the sins of the Amorites, the desperate wickedness which they were practicing in the land of Canaan at this time, a time when they committed ongoing sacrifices of newborn children to their god Molech. They used to put the children through the mouth of the god and they fell through into the fire which was kept burning at the feet of the god and they did that constantly an ongoing sacrifice of the newborn to their god Molech. They were willful in their iniquity. Incest was very common amongst them. There was all sorts of wickedness of all sorts of types and I don't want to get into this morning. And I suppose the folk thought we can get away with it. We'll never be brought into judgment. We're in control of our own affairs. We have a city which is strong, Jericho being the headquarters of that southern part of the land of Israel. And they got away with it, apparently. But there came a day when God was going to judge the city physically, and the men and women in the city were going to go into the presence of God eternally to be judged by him. And that, of course, is what awaits each of us. We either respond to the mercy of God and the kindness of the Almighty as he has sent the Son to die in our place, to, to die our death, to suffer for my sin and for your sin. And we either deal with God on that basis or God deals with us on the basis of us continuing in our sin and rejecting the love that he has shown. And you will see immediately that that is perfectly just because God is a God of justice, a God of judgment. And if I reject his mercy and decide to live on my own terms, is it not then right that God should judge me for my ongoing wickedness? 
But that's not my subject this morning, primarily. I want to look just at two aspects of this particular story. I want to look at the the people and the priests and the city and the fact that the people had to learn humility. And then I want to look a little at this lady Rahab, this woman who had prostituted herself almost certainly in the temple of Molech, which was in Jericho, and was recognized for living that lifestyle. And look at why God showed her mercy. So this whole business of learning humility. You'll notice that uh, in our opening verses of the chapter that God had revealed to Joshua what he was going to do. And I just remind you, God said to him, march around the city once with all the armed men, do it for six days, make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, and the seventh day march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. There is no indication that Joshua shared the detail of that revelation to the people of Israel. No indication in the passage, no indication anywhere else in Scripture that Joshua told the people this was what was going to happen. He just gave them the instructions to do the marching. And I quite like that. You know, they had to march in battle order, and that's the word which is used here. They had to exercise discipline. You'll remember that our reading says that Joshua instructed them that they weren't to respond to the taunts that came from the walls of Jericho. And you can imagine the folk within Jericho saying to themselves, what are these people up to? Tiring themselves out in the early morning, marching around our city, and then going back to the camp. What's going on? And you can imagine the sort of taunts that would come from the people of Jericho as they looked at this, what they may have thought, a rigmarole being repeated not just once, but twice, and three times, and four times. What do you think the Israelites were thinking? Why do we have to do this? It's a very strange way to besiege a city. Why should we be marching around it all the time? And I suppose the central thing that comes across, and we were thinking about the faithfulness of God to his promises, the central thing that comes across that his people have to exercise faith as well. Desmond said as he closed his section this morning, we need to recognize that we need to obey what God says. Sometimes it seems very strange. Let me just share something with you that comes to mind. I was pastoring in Aberdeen for a number of years. And one of the men who got converted was uh, a guy who was the manager of Debenhams in Aberdeen. And uh, he came to us and asked if he could be baptized. I hadn't actually been preaching on baptism at all. He'd just been reading the Bible. And he came across it in the book of the Acts. And he said to us, really like to be baptized because... That's what seemed to happen whenever people came to Christ in in the New Testament. So we had a chat, and I agreed to baptize him. And he said, I don't want to do it when everybody's there on Sunday mornings. usually about 200 plus or thereabouts there on Sunday mornings. And he said, "Uh, 
what I would like to do is to get baptized on a Tuesday. And I said to him, Gary, why? He said, because I want to invite all the rest of the managers and the various bits and pieces of Debenhams. I want to in- invite them to come with their wives just to see what I'm doing. So we agreed to baptize him on the Tuesday night, a couple of weeks following. And he announced it all over Debenhams, and quite a number of the folk from Debenhams were there. So in the process of the service, he was baptized. And as we finished his baptism, his son, who was 17 at that time, came up and said, Peter, I would like to be baptized. And I knew he had come to the Lord about three years earlier. So again, we had a brief chat, and I said, well, when are you going to get baptized, Tom? He said, now. And his father had just gone into the changing room at the back. And I said, well, why now? He said, well, the Lord's been speaking to him about it ever since my father said he was going to be baptized. I didn't want to put it off to tomorrow. He said, I want to go into school and tell the guys who I was baptized last night. Obedience. So we baptized him. He had no clothes to change into. He thought it was the middle of the summer. And for once in the summer, the sun was shining in Aberdeen. So he got home safely and told his friends the following day he had been baptized to indicate that he was trying to follow the Lord Jesus. Four times around the city. Five times around the city. Joshua said, you've got to do it another day. Six times around the city. And then he says in the seventh day, you've got to do it seven times today. Seven times? I walked around it six times already. I'm getting fed up with the view. Well, you have to do it again. He said, when you hear the priests blow a long blast on the trumpet, you're to shout as loud as you can. Now, shouts against walls that are 40 feet high and about 26 foot thick don't normally make a big difference. But when God's engaged in his particular directions, you never know what might happen. According to those various things that have been, various excavations that have been done around Jericho, there was one of the walls of Jericho that went straight into the ground. Suddenly. Didn't fall outwards. Didn't fall inwards. Just appeared to have gone straight down into the ground. You'll recognize immediately that this is beyond human reason. Because you'll notice what it says further on in the chapter. In verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and, the sound, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed or went straight into the ground. So every man charged straight in. Now, if you have a wall that's 40 feet high and 26 feet thick, unless it goes straight into the ground, you can't charge straight in. You read about the sieges of medieval times and the walls eventually were eventually pierced but then they had to climb the rubble. And there was all sorts of difficulty in getting into medieval cities. And you know that. But God is involved in this situation. And intriguingly, when you come to the New Testament, there's a little phrase in there which says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal 
That is, they're not things that we have thought through in order to have an effect. We don't use that which is of our old nature in order to engage in spiritual warfare. That's not what it's about. It's about doing things God's way. It's about finding out what God would have us do and then doing it with all our hearts so that God can use the little that we are in order to accomplish his much wider purposes. And you notice that you have the shout of the priests, you have the march of the priests, you have the march of the people, and you have the shout of the people, and all were necessary in this particular business of conquering Jericho. This hugely significant event in the conquest of Canaan. Because this was how God had designed it. And you'll notice that right at the center of it, and I think mentioned it 11 times in the story, you have this emphasis upon the ark of the Lord. This example of the presence of God amongst his people. This intervention of God on his people's behalf to accomplish his purpose for his people at this particular time. But they were all engaged It wasn't a question of somebody getting up in the morning and said, I can't be bothered today. My family ain't marching. We're not playing ball anymore. It was all of the people, these particular priests, the foreguard and the rearguard, everybody engaged in doing what God required. To the degree that the only time in seven days that the people spoke around the walls of Jericho was to give a shout In Gideon's time, we discover that the shout was the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. But we're not told what the shout was here. Whether it was just a cry expressing the frustration of the people, or whether it was a shout that related to the name of the God of Israel, we don't know. But whatever it was, because these people were engaged in God's purpose, God used it in order to fulfill his requirements. And the thing that came really home to me this particular week was just this whole question that very often when we engage with the Lord and we're doing what he would have us do, it's beyond our human reason. You know, I have no idea after 50 years of preaching why preaching is effective unless God takes the word and uses it. And I don't know how God does that, but that's what he does. I know whenever people sit in a congregation like this, Different people hear different things. And I don't know how God does it, but I know God does it. And whenever God is involved in a situation, you have absolutely no idea what the outcome might be. Hence that baptism of Tom, Gary's son, on that Tuesday evening back in Aberdeen. Because somehow or other, God had been speaking to Tom since his father Gary had said, well, I really should be baptized. And three years after his conversion, Tom was baptized. And here you have these people and they're encouraged to shout. And when they shout, this miraculous thing happens. But there's something even more miraculous than that. Because we discover later in the narrative that the part of the wall that Rahab's house was built into did not go straight into the ground. And the only part of the wall that did not go into the ground was Rahab's dwelling. More of that when we look at it 
uh, when I'm back, God willing, at the end of the month. But you know, this whole business of, of recognizing God's intervention, not just in judgment, but in mercy. And that which brings judgment to many brings mercy into the, the life of, into the life of this woman and her family. And redemption is like that. You know, what happened at the cross was that God judged sin in the person of his son. And the scripture says that the Lord Jesus was made sin for us or was made to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that you and I, if we come to faith in him, might be made the righteousness of God in him. And somehow or other, whenever you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, this life which we once knew, God transforms and makes us new people. And the scripture says elsewhere, we become a new creation. But that deliverance which comes through Christ is also the basis of condemnation for those who don't come to Christ. You see why, don't you? Because if I don't accept his death as my death, if I don't accept his sacrifice for sin as his sacrifice for my sin, then I stand before God naked. I stand before God in judgment. And the same chapter in John chapter 3, which talks about the, the love of God, goes on to talk about the fact that he that believes not is condemned already. We're condemned before God. We're under the judgment of God as Jericho was. But because Rahab had received the spies and bore testimony to her faith in God, she was spared when the walls of Jericho come down. So you have this amazing display of both the judgment of God and the mercy of God. So it was beyond human reason. It required total cooperation and fellowship together with the Lord and with one another. It demanded organization. It demanded effort. It demanded perspiration, especially on the seventh day. In obedience to the command, all they had to do was what they were told. You know, I'm a real thick Irishman, and it took me years to discover that all the Lord required of me was obedience. Because if I trust him, I can obey him. We were blessed with having a, a new little girl born into our family, another grandchild. She rejoices in the name of Scout. I have no idea why, except that my younger daughter at one time read To Kill a Mockingbird, and I presume it came from that, but that's by the by. What we were praying for before she was born and since she was born is that Scout will come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And I couldn't care less if she made millions. She probably won't. But I do want to see her come to Christ. And every morning we pray for her, as we pray for all her family. Because the only thing that really matters when all the chips are down is whether you know the Lord Jesus or not. The only thing that really mattered for these particular people was to engage in God's purpose and to obey him. And even though it tired them out, Nevertheless, because they obeyed him and followed the ark of the Lord, as I said, mentioned 11 times in this particular 21 verses, kept on following, kept on following, kept on following. That was all I had to do. Kept on marching. 
You know, we wrestle not, the Apostle says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we're to put on the whole armor of God so it may be able to stand. And when we've done all to stand, and I have to trust the Lord, and I have to obey the Lord, because it's only in his strength that this victory is given. So Joshua doesn't fit the battle of Jericho. God gives the victory. All they had to do was obey him. We'll discover afterwards that there was one guy in one family who decided to disobey him. And God was faithful to his word. Because you'll notice if I read verse 18, Joshua reminded them they were to keep away from the things that were devoted to God so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. The next chapter is the story of the battle of Ai. And nobody sings songs about it because the Israelites were defeated in the first battle of Ai. You know why? Because a character called Achan decided he knew better than God and he stole from that which was to be given to God and God brought to bear this. God doesn't have any favorites. You know, please get out of your head that there are special people that God loves. Desmond made that absolutely clear this morning. God loves me, the rascal that I am. I know the sort of man I am. But I know beyond that that God loves me. And, you know, there are no favorites. I disobey God. I suffer for it. And that's what Achan decided to do. And nobody will know. I'll take a garment. I'll take some silver. I'll take some gold. I'll hide in my tent. And nobody will know a thing about it. But God knew. I can't hide from him. You know, my down-sitting and my uprising is known. He knows my thoughts before I have them. I'm just called to obey and to obey and respond in faith. But I must close on a more positive note, and that is to look at the the loveliness of God's mercy. If you look at verse 17, and I don't know if we can find it, Hazel, but it would be good if we could. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. That means they had to be handed over to God for his judgment. The stuff that was valuable was brought into the Lord's treasury. But the city and the people within it, because of their extreme wickedness, were going to be judged by the sword. But there was a really wicked woman there. Almost certainly, as I've said, one of the temple prostitutes. But maybe just a common or garden prostitute, if there is such a thing. And you'll notice what it says in verse 17. And the scripture is so emphatic here. Only Rahab, and there's no glossing of her occupation, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she had the spies we sent. And we read her story in chapter 2, and you know she hid them because she saw God's hand among the people of Israel. And she said to the spies, she said, I know that God has given you the city. So, a woman of the street, but who had a perception of who God was. There's a a little phrase in the scripture which says, "The, the fear of the Lord 
as the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, uh, if I want to begin to be wise, I need to have a recognition of who God is. One of the things I've been preaching on recently is, are the creation revelations that we have in Genesis 1 through 3. And I've been astounded at the number of Christian people who are afraid to look at the passages and see what it says. Because the whole of scriptural faith and belief hangs on Genesis 1 through 3. If I make God less than he is, then I've lost the plot. If I recognize who God is, it's the beginning of wisdom. And you might be here this morning and say, I don't believe I believe in God. What's that guy talking about? Well, then you're not wise. Because this is where it starts. When I, when I begin to get God into the center of my thinking, you begin to discover that life can make sense. I mean, if I was to chat to you afterwards and say, why are you alive? What's your purpose? Because without God, we're without hope. You know, we have no perspective on the true future that we have. And here's Rahab, and she has this consciousness and awareness of God. And then in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, and I don't have time to look at them now because my time's almost gone, she has an appreciation of the ability of God. And she has concern for the salvation of her family. In chapter 6, verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord, destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And you think to yourself, well, how is Rahab still alive? Because Rahab wasn't in it. She was on the wall. Yeah? Yeah? She was in the wall, the bit of the wall that hadn't disappeared into the ground. And you discover later on, uh, look at verse 25. I don't know if you can get there. Hazel, don't worry. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent the spies to Joshua. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Joshua spared her life. When you come to Matthew chapter 1, where you read the story of the background to the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, you discover there in verse 25 that there's a woman mentioned who becomes part of the family, the previous family of the Messiah. Oh, she was. Rahab. Rahab the prostitute had a son to a guy called Salmon. Unfortunate name. He might have been tinned, but he wasn't. And Salmon married Rahab after the siege of Jericho. And they had a son. You know what his name was? Do you remember? Obed. You know who Obed was? 
Excuse the genealogy. Obed was the father of Jesse. Not you, Jesse, but Jesse. <laughs> and Jesse was the father of King David. You remember what the Israelites cried whenever Jesus was riding into the city on the bank of a donkey just before he was crucified? Hosanna to the son of David. See how God does things. We think ourselves of no consequence. And we're right. And God takes this ungodly woman and brings her into his family. She lives among the Israelites to this day as this book was being written. And then she becomes part of the line of the Messiah. She comes, becomes a forerunner. This prostitute becomes a forerunner of he who was born of Mary. Because God's grace is just amazing. God can do anything with a person. And Rahab had no idea when Obed was born that he was going to be part of the line of the Messiah. Absolutely no idea. But God knew exactly what he was doing. Because God's grace is like that. There are no special people, but there are people that God uses for special purposes. That's our calling. And whatever he says to you today, will you do it? I hope to go later on to a 70th birthday. She's just a youngster, really, but it's a very important birthday to her. So she invited Jill and I to share her birthday with her today and a number of others. So we're meeting in a hotel in the outskirts of Wellington at 20 past one to have a birthday party. And you know what that dear Lady Esther will be saying? And what she wants me to say as I introduce the particular d dinner. She'll be saying, Peter, I want you to say just how good God has been to me down the years. God's been good to all of us down the years. But to know him, to begin to get to know him, is special. Trust him today. He died for you. If someone loved you enough to die for you, surely he's worth trusting. God bless you. Let's pray together, shall we?